to Grow Your Dental Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Mohamed Ismail. I'm a cloud accounting expert and a business advisor to dental and medical professionals. My firm, Shift Accounting, has helped our clients reach their financial goals. We are absolutely passionate about the dental industry, so we created the Grow Your Dental Practice Podcast. Provide you with valuable resources and help you grow your dental practice. I interview experts in the industry, extract all the wonderful knowledge they have, and give it to you, our wonderful listeners. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Gabriel Macher, CEO of GEM Dental Experts. Gabriel has over 30 years of experience and dedicate her time helping dentists optimize their clinic's hygiene team. She's here with us today, and she is going to share valuable information on what she looks for at a dental clinic and how she optimizes teams and the big things that are impacting your practice. She's going to talk with us about the difference between school and the real world, how focusing on patients can help you increase your revenue, how to grow performance and build a great hygiene team, how to deal with the root causes and issues for the long-term success. I'm really excited for you to hear what Gabriel has to share with us today. I found her emphasis on long-term success, even if it takes longer to solve these root causes, to be a real insightful tip that all dentists can learn from. So let's get started. Hello, podcast listeners. I would like to welcome my guest, Gabriel Mitcher, CEO of GEM Dental Experts, Inc. Uh, Gabriel has 30, over 30 years of experience in clinical and business, and what she does is optimize your clinic and optimize the hygiene department. I actually attended one of her in-depth sessions, um, the first half of the day was really interesting for me was business and how uh, the hygiene can impact your numbers. And then Gabriel went very clinical on me. Uh, So, but I was really impressed to kind of see the depth she goes into. Gabriel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Mohammed. It's great to be here. So Gabriel, tell me a little bit more about you um, and your journey and how you improve hygiene department for clinics? Well, you know what? My journey, like you said, started 30 years back. And it's interesting because when I graduated from school, I went straight into practice, but I started working with a periodontist. And in working with a periodontist, I I took what I learned from school and I implemented it the way it was supposed to be. From there, my journey sort of took me in a direction that was always what I consider best practices when it came to working with patients in clinics. So I inevitably, literally 25, maybe even 20 years after I graduated, ended up becoming a clinical instructor at a college. And then from there became the program director of that particular college. And from doing that, I began to realize that what we were teaching in terms of clinical standards or best practice standards wasn't really being integrated within private practices. And I just so happened at the same time to be introduced to a gentleman who wanted me to come into his practice to help educate or develop his hygienist into what he considered best practices because he was coist trained and he understood what 
his patient outcomes should look like. And he was, he felt that he wasn't getting those outcomes. So that's basically how I started my journey into being a consultant, because in doing that and taking that practice to where he wanted me to take it, I began to realize that creating a very hygiene focused epicenter uh, or practice, which the hygiene department's the epicenter was the way to not just get those optimal patient outcomes, but to produce huge amounts of revenue. So that's basically been my journey is starting out sort of on the right foot and then taking that right foot and making sure that throughout my practices, it continues. So Gabriel, what, what is, what, what is the disconnect between, you know, school, I guess, and then the real world? Well, you know what, there's a few things. Um, first of all, we teach best practices. And in fact, you know what, I just read a great article and it was in the, or it's in the oral health, November, 2019 uh, magazine, where it talks about there's this gap between what is proven in clinical research and what is clinically practiced. So basically what happens is when you get out of school, there's a sort of a bit of a lack of mentorship, meaning you get into private practice and the way it's being done is the way you're, you adopt those, those systems and those processes, which generally do not mirror what best practices look, look like. In fact, the American Academy of Periodontology says that 86% per, of practices are not meeting the standard of care to treat periodontal disease. So basically from school to private practice, there's that breakdown. Then not only that, when it comes to sort of the clinical research that's out there, there's a huge gap in which it becomes integrated into private practice. In fact, they say that gap is so big, it's anywhere from 10 to 20 years. And a good example right now about that would be what just came out in 2017, which is the new global uh, periodontal classification. That's just come out. We've been using the same one or the, the old one, the same one for 20 years. And when I go to teach now the new 2017 classification, I realize that the 1999 or the old classification classification is still not understood. So basically I have to teach the old classification to be able to explain how the new classification came about. So that statistic is really real and it's really real in clinical practices. And they say about 14% of what the new literature says is actually integrated. So there's a huge disconnect between coming out of school, starting private practice, what the new literature is saying, what is actually being implemented within the practices. So basically when I'm coming into these practices, I'm trying to get them up to speed in terms of what is the most current evidence-based literature? How does that impact your patient outcomes? And how then in turn does that impact revenue? Which is, and it's huge. So how do you, how do you bridge this gap? Well, basically, like I said, I basically come into practices and I sort of establish a baseline of where they're at. And from that baseline, and we, I'm, I'm working with hygienists, I'm working with the doctors, the, the gap is real in terms of the number of years or the differences in the number of years of clinical experiences, the schools that they've gone to, their alignment to what the literature, what they've learned or what the most current evidence-based literature is. And what I do is I take the group and I align them to what is now currently the most current evidence-based literature. And when I do that, then I'm aligning each one to each other. And I sort of take away this, what 
their clinical experiences, like what they feel or what they think, and I align it to what the rationale of the literature has to say, so that everybody's speaking the same mm. language. Right. So, I, I mean, that is a, a big task to, you know, bridge this gap, make sure everybody is on the same page, uh, and make sure that, you know, uh, the patient's health is taken care of, right? Um, so, Let's let's break this down because just there's a lot of you know uh, topics here we can, we can drill down. Um, you know the things that I always hear you know from you know clinics is like um, you know my patients are insurance focused or I don't have enough time to do what I need to do, um, right? Or or maybe you know the philosophy in the in the office is not um, they're not talking the same language. So how how do we kind of deal with all these issues? Well, you know what I always say, even though I predominantly work with dental hygienists, my main focus is on the doctors. So when you talk about a philosophy, the doctor has to want this. The doctor has to want what we call sort of alignment um, in their hygiene team. And they, they have to want what we I call a very perio-focused practice. If the doctor wants it, typically the hygienist, we always want it. Like we always want to be able to practice the way we were taught to practice. So creating this philosophy, I don't create it unless the doctor wants it. If the doctor wants it, I can make that happen within a practice. I could never walk into a practice if the doctor doesn't, you know, doesn't value um, a perio-focused practice or doesn't value sort of periodontal treatment or to the level of which I train dental hygienists. I can only come into a practice where a doctor really wants that. So it has to start, the accountability of that happening has to start with the doctor. When it comes to things like insurance, that takes me a long time to basically what, and I call that those limiting beliefs, like clinicians thinking that they can only present treatment based on insurance support. And ethically, I try to teach them that that's just not right, because ethically, we have to present treatment as needed, like what client-specific treatment. And it takes me quite some time to, I guess, show them the value in what they do so that they can present the value to their patients. And the truth is, is if patients see value in what you're doing, they the insurance becomes sort of a byproduct. And I know most people probably listening to this podcast are going to say, no, 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 I've been doing this like for 20 years. That is absolutely not true. If it's not covered, the patient isn't going to, isn't going to uh, accept treatment. And I always say that if you understand the literature, if you give rationale to your patient based on the literature, that shows them value, that shows them value. It's rare that a patient's going to say, no, thank you to that. They may say, how much is my insurance going to cover and what is it going to cost me out of pocket? That's a very different conversation. And besides, insurance was never developed to cover disease. It was always there. Employers provided it to, as a sort of an extra to, to provide sort of, if you've got health, to provide maintenance. But if you've got, you know, tons of disease in terms of cavities, tons of disease in, in terms of perio, it was never meant to be there to take care of that. So patients have to understand that. The clinician has to understand that. And the other thing that clinicians need to understand is that 80% of people are walking in their practice with some level of periodontal disease. So the notion 
of being able to take care of that disease in one appointment or to take care of it with the coverage that they currently have is the wrong notion. And typically what I find with clinicians is that it's their limiting beliefs that is getting in the way of the patient accepting treatment. It's not the patient not wanting to accept the treatment. It's the, high, the clinician thinking the patient won't, so they create that. They, and I, I like the saying that what you feel and think you make real. And that's the truth. As soon as they take that out of the equation, that this is just a no-brainer that this needs to be done in terms of your oral health, all of a sudden the patient starts to see it the way you believe it. Right. No, ab absolutely. I, I, hear, I hear this, you know, uh, all the time that, you know, uh, the patients are too sensitive. You know, the um, people don't have insurance anymore. The economy is, is, is slow. Uh, but I agree with you. It's, it's a, it's, it's healthcare first, right? You know, um, yeah. you know, the providers need to present, you know, healthcare issues and regardless of insurance or payments that, that comes secondary. It comes secondary because basically, you know what, I find that the way treatment is presented is presented in a manner in which, and I'll give you an example. Today, we're going to take a bunch of x-rays for you. And the patient looks at you and goes, no, that's not going to happen. Well, how did that clinician, I've heard, actually heard a, a clinician say that, and it's almost like, oh, my goodness. You know, we used to be one of the most trusted professions. We are now considered one of the least trusted professions. So when you're presenting treatment like that or presenting a service that you're going to do like that, where was the rationale in that? There was no rationale, like based on terms in terms of their needs. Like, why would you want to take a series of radiographs? And in 60 5% of the cases of your patients coming in, they have some level of periodontitis. And when they have periodontitis, <clears throat> a series of radiographs do need to be taken like a four mile series. But that's not how it's presented. It's presented that we need to take, you know, a couple of radiographs today. And based on these radiographs, if we see any further disease, we may, we may need to take more radiographs. And it gets explained in terms of rationale and what the literature says or based on what the literature says you need in order to, you know, come up with a periodontal diagnosis. And it's not just doc, Dr. So-and-so would like me to take these radiographs. That is not rationale. Right. So, okay. I mean, I mean, I, I can see how languaging uh, is, is really important and, you know, positioning uh, that conversation with the patient is, is really important. Tell me, uh, Gabriel, what are the signs, you know, looking at a practice, what are the signs that you, you know, you would see from, you know, an analysis to say, okay, you know what, this practice, you know, needs help in their hygiene. What, what are the things that you look for? Well, you know, the first thing I do is I go in and I do a chart audit in their hygiene department. And what I'm looking at, and these are the statistics, and I just, I've mentioned a couple of them, 80% of your patients have some level of periodontal disease. So if I'm seeing that 80% or for eight out of 10 of your pa their patients are coming back only once or coming in for a cleaning, I already know that they're not providing the standard of care to treat periodontal disease. So I'm looking that the majority of the patients are coming back at least one more time. I'm looking at whether- So, so when you say one more time, are you, are you saying, you know, um, like two times a year or like the frequency no. Or, or- No, that's a good question. Uh, no, what I'm looking at is 
if that patient is coming in for a cleaning and then getting put on a recall, or if that patient's coming in for one, like in terms of their initial therapy, how many times are they coming in to solve the problem that they have in terms of what level of periodontal disease? So in some cases, a patient may need to come back one more time for that initial therapy. In some cases, they may need to come back four or six times. In fact, almost 65% of the time, their patients need to be coming in for what we call quadrant or sextant scaling. And it depends also on the age range in that practice. So I'm looking at those patients and trying to figure out like what level of periodontal disease they have. Then I'm looking at how many appointments that person is going through for initial therapy. The whole maintenance thing becomes another thing that I look at. So I'm looking at, like I said, number one, out of 10 patients, how many of those patients need to come back for just initial therapy to get their bleeding points to a point that is considered health? Then I'm looking at how many of their patients are on a three-month hygiene recare. And basically, I'm going to say that the majority of practices, about 10% of their patients are coming back every three months. Some of the sort of more perio-focused practices that I work with, it's about 17 in the practices that I work with or that I've worked with and based on the literature, it should be about, I always say 50 plus. I have practices that 60% of their patients are coming back on a three month recare. And the reason being, and if you understand the literature is that, like I said, up to 65% of your patients can have periodontitis. And once they have periodontitis, it becomes a disease that's managed and it's managed through more frequent recares. So that's another thing I look at. I look at also what percentage of the overall revenue is hygiene. And I like that number to be around 30. I do have practices where it's higher, but the, when, it, when it becomes higher, I just say the doctors aren't working hard enough or they're not producing <laughs> enough. Whether they want to or not, that is sort of my analysis. And when I go back into it, I go, okay, they aren't. Do they want to? Do they care? And a lot of times it's like, nah. Let my hygiene team do it. But the, the magic number is 30. Then that says to me that they're, yeah, that they're, the hygiene department is optimized and then the, the dentistry is optimized. The amount of revenue is optimized. So no matter how much I optimize a, a hygiene department within a practice, I still always want to see that number around 30. That, that's right, the right, right number. And then the other thing so, is, is I'm always, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, just to quickly recap. So you're looking at, you know, um, how many times patients are coming back, right? You're looking for initial at therapy, yes. the, for initial therapy, you're looking at, uh, you know, the percentage of, uh, hygiene to the overall production. And you want that percentage Correct. to be 30, 30%, uh, or a little bit above, right? Uh, what else are you looking at? Well, the recare, like how frequently do their patients come back? Like what percentage of their patients are coming in in three months? Another right. thing I'm looking at is how much are the hygienists producing per hour? And that's the only sort of number where I'm really focused, not just on the literature, but I'm focused on the revenue because all across Canada, depending on what province you're from and, and depending like what province you're working in, the sort of the rules or the interpretation of the fee guide can be different. And what I'm finding is a, the dent, well, usually the dentist does have a pretty good idea because the dental associations are very good in informing their registrants about how it should look. But that information isn't really transferred to the hygienists. And if it is, it's a lot of times it's misinterpreted. 
So there's a disconnect between what the doctors and the province or the dental associations say it should look like in terms of billing and what the hygienists are actually billing. So I actually look at their billing based on the provinces that they're working in and go, are they billing appropriately? And in 99% of the case, they're not. They're just not. So there's a huge amount of underbilling is typically what I see. I rarely see or I rarely work with doctors that are overbilling. It's typically that the hygienists are underbilling. So if, if we're, you know, this is kind of like a, a, a question that always comes up in, you know, and it's one of the, you know, KPIs that dentists look at. So, you know, how, how do, for example, for the province of Alberta, what should be, you know, the average billing per hour? I mean, is that, is that how you look at it or do you look at it differently? No, I, I look at it like that. I'm, I, in BC, it's about 200. In Alberta, it's about 300. And I, when I'm doing that, I'm also looking at, I'm not looking at the hours that they work that they're producing that. I particularly, if I want to, what if I want to really see if the hygienist is billing appropriately, I will look at the hour sheet they are actually sitting with a patient and say, what are they producing when they're actually sitting with a patient? That will give me an indication if they're billing appropriately for that hour. Then the other okay, so, so just at, just to you know clarify what I said, th- this yes, is yes. Uh, billing per appointment, not billing by the hour. Because if, if I'm looking at average billing by the hour, I might be factoring gaps. But if we're looking Correct. at billing per appointment, Correct. okay, Correct. got you. So okay. I look at both those numbers. But okay, so you're looking at the day. They work eight hours. What are they billing right. per hour, it, including cancellations and no-shows? So I do that as well. Then I also look, take out the cancellations and the no-shows. What are they billing then per hour? The second number is, are they billing appropriately for that hour? The first number, are they getting too many cancellation and that's diluting their, right. their hourly production? And if that is the case, then I start to look at a few things. Like I start to look at, is this hygienist one that doesn't create trust and commitment in her patients? Is this a real problem with the practice? Like what's going on with that? Like I, they tell two different stories. And sometimes they're fairly close because an average or a practice is very well run and or that hygienist has created those very committed patients. I have lots of practices where there's less than one cancellation per day. If there is more wow, than one that's amazing. Yeah, but that's, you know what, that's the thing. When you start to, to work at a level, which I call best practices, I actually really feel sorry for these hygienists because they don't really get a break because it would be rare for a patient not to show when they realize and they value what those hygienists are doing for them. So yeah, I've got lots of practices. Their citrate, I also look at their citrate is 98%. So I think, oh my goodness, like they never get a break, like to get up or just to stretch. Like I know they're all wishing they would get a cancellation just, and when they do, they get really excited (laughs) because it happens so rarely. And having been sort of a clinical dental hygienist for a very long time, I know that kind of is nice. But also being a clinical hygienist for these many years and always implementing best practices, it was rare also that I would ever get cancellations. But you know those team members that are getting a lot of cancellations are probably A, not working to that level, or they're not creating that commitment with your patients. And here's the other thing. I always always say to, to the front end, it's not your job to keep them booked. 
because you can never keep a clinician book that patients don't like or don't see the value in what they're doing. I mean, it helps, but in general, a hygienist can keep themselves booked with very little effort from the front end. So I this is very interesting. You, you know, uh, I just want to pause here because this is very interesting. You know, um, I, I always hear from clinics, oh, you know what, the fronts are not doing, you know, good job in booking the patients, right? And it's always this tug between the front, you know, and, and the back, I guess. Um, how do you how do you resolve this? Like, who's who's responsible for what, in your opinion? Well, the dentists listening to this podcast aren't going to like what I have to say about this. But again, <laughs> I and you know what the funny thing is, is I get so much resistance when I say this. And then inevitably, when they come on side, because they'll say things to me like that, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to book me properly. They double book me, then they overbook me, then they do that. And I go, well, why don't you just book yourself? Like you're the person at the back who has the most authority. So before that patient walks out the door, and I'm not talking about the assistant, I'm talking about the doctor actually booking the patient. He knows where he wants to put them. He knows how to maximize his schedule. He knows where he you know, can create opportunities in his schedule. He's the person that the patient, if they're going to say no or resist treatment because of cost, fear, whatever, they're going to say it to him. And then it is within his scope to say, then let's, let's change this. Let's modify sort of your treatment plan. Let's, you know, come up with alter, like alternative ways to, to do this. Maybe we'll break it up, do some now, do some later. So the bottom line is when that person leaves and they're being booked by the front and all of these fears or objections come up, it's not really in the scope of practice of the admin staff to go, okay, let's just, instead of doing these fillings today, let's do this or let's do that. Like it's not in their scope. So the patient instead turns around and says, I'll call you back, walks out the door. And then the doctor comes and goes, why did that person not book? Well, basically they didn't book because you didn't get consent. You didn't get consent in many ways that this was a treatment that they wanted to accept. They heard you, they understand it, but there's other things going on that you didn't work through to make sure that they said yes to your treatment and your front end, even with great front end treatment coordinators and stuff like that, they're still going to come in, come against more roadblocks than you would if you did it in the back. And most of my practices with the doctors, first of all, for the doctors who've been practicing in the same clinic for 35 years, they're not going to do it and they don't need to do it because they've been practicing for 35 years. They're so booked. Their patients are just saying yes and coming in. But for all those new doctors, new associates who are trying to book up their day, why are they relying on the front to create their revenue and their income and how they want their days to look? So then they take away all of these sort of complaints about their front end. The front end team has enough to do other than booking your patients, they're picking up the phone. They're trying to get patients into your into your chairs. They're you know they're doing receivables. They're doing follow ups. They're doing pre authorized. They've got so much to do. They don't really need this job. This is a job that should be focused on in the back. And with hygienists, it's the same thing. They're booking their next appointment. If a patient cancels, which is rare, then they've got a patient in their chair that they can make the decision to spend more time on, or ask the next patient to come in and spend more time with them or whatever. It is, it is totally in control of that, the, the clinicians within the practice. So yeah, I take that job away from the front. I give it back to the, to the, to the back. 
I get a lot of resistance until such a time that they actually try it and they go, whoa, this really works. And then, wow, this makes a huge difference. I typically can see a huge jump in the dental revenue when this happens. And typically when I come into practice and they go, wow, there was a huge jump in your dental revenue. What's changed? That's typically what's changed. Oh, well, we decided to listen to you. And yeah, we're booking. And it, it goes like that. And then I just sort of smile. It's uh, okay. I mean, you know what I mean? Like these are, you hire a consultant, you ask them sort of what works. These are things that I've seen happen in other practice sort of accidentally and go, wow, that's really interesting. You're booking your own appointments and your patients are never saying no to you. I can see that. And so I've integrated it into all my other practices, just like I do with most of the things I see that I think really work well in practices. I then start to integrate them into my other practices. And there's what, like what a are lot your of thoughts? Uh, what are your thoughts about, you know, uh, bonuses and making, you know, people give people more incentive to, you know, to push? What are your thoughts about that? Well, I have practices where hygienists want that. And then I have practices that they don't. Um, and so I create bonus systems for those hygienists that do. I also have practices that they have bonus systems, but they sort of post them like... Um, like at the end of the month for everyone to see. I don't feel, I don't agree with that. But if I'm working with the doctor and that's what he wants to do, I have to agree with the doctor. He's paying me. So I, I am not adverse to a bonus system. I think sometimes when you put a bonus system in place, then you have also the obligation as a practice to monitor that. So when I'm working with practices or with practice managers, I'm always looking at their hourly production. And when I'm looking at their hourly production, I know when somebody's gone rogue, meaning they're now billing for everything and anything that really probably is on the border of unethical. And so then you have to rein those people back in. So I like it, but then there becomes this ethical obligation for your, your management to make sure that that's not out of control because the practice becomes liable then. Right. right. It, it might create, you know, an adverse effect, um, you know, and yeah. I, 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 I personally agree with you. I mean, you, you need to pay people fairly, you know, for for their work. But, you know, I, I feel that um, a lot of or practices would incentivize laziness. Right. Oh, my 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 hygiene department is not performing. My hygienists are not performing. So maybe I should implement a bonus system where the reality is could be, no, they need training in communication. They need training, maybe clinical yes. training, right? Bonus system is, it's, it's almost like a Band-Aid. It's not really solving the problem. Well, you know, once you get to the level that I take the hygiene team, if then they feel, because they are really working hard, not to say that hygienists aren't, but they're really working hard and dotting all their I's and crossing all their T's. And if, the practice would like to incentivize them then based on how hard they work. And they don't want to always be um, sort of having their hygiene team come to them for like wage increases and things like that. Then I like the bonus system because as the fee guides increase, they're getting an automatic raise right away. Right. So I don't, it depends when it comes in, but I agree with you. If it's at a time because they don't like the performance of their hygiene team, but they haven't looked at professional development and getting their clinical skills up to best practices and really focusing on what, like patient outcomes, then I don't think it's a good thing. But once patient outcomes is focused on, 
then I think that's the appropriate time to introduce that. Uh, that's really awesome. Gabriel, I, I know there's a lot of things we 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 kind of covered here, right? What you know, if, if we're gonna summarize, you know, the three clinical breakdowns that really impact a practice, how would you put it? Well, I again when I go through my chart audits, I, I usually see five things, but the three clinical things that I see. Oh no, give me the number, five. I'm on the five. Yeah, I want the five. <laughs> okay, well, okay. So there's there's five. T typically, and you know what, it doesn't matter where across Canada I go, they're always the same five. And they're broken down at different degrees. Like some may be really broken down. Like I'm working with a practice right now with their hourly hygiene. Okay, so one is um, that they're not billing appropriately. And I'm working with one practice right now that it's so broken, it's, and this is in Alberta, their hygiene team is producing less than hygienists do in, in BC. And, we, and, and in BC, we have the lowest fees. So that's really broken down. If I could just fix that one thing, I think he'd love me. So that's number one. <laughs> your hygiene, no, seriously, that's all I need to do. And I could be gone. He'd be like 50% higher in his revenue for his hygiene team. But the thing so, is, so is that... just a little bit of, you know, I just want to kind of a little bit drill down here. So people are not billing correctly. And is that the, you know, are they spending the time, but they're just not, you know, Correct. give me a little that's bit, a little bit of background in, in the billing. Well, there, well, first of all, there's two types of billing that you can do. Like some practices or some provinces are called what's called the consortium provinces. Other are non-consortium provinces. And this was all developed um, with RK House. And some of the provinces are still following it and some are not. But you, based on what province you are, consortium versus non-consortium, if you're a consortium province like BC and Alberta, they're leaning towards that. You have to, for the whole hour, you're supposed to be billing for that entire hour. If you are in Manitoba, which is a non-consortium province, basically you bill what's called when your hands are in the patient's mouth. It's called wet-handed billing. So that's different. So it depends what province you're from. Then the other thing that is different, there's certain services, certain procedures that you do may, that may be considered a service or may be considered a procedure based on time. And that's different in every province. So as hygienists move across Canada and with different sort of pro different provincial jurisdictions, they have to understand what is considered a service, what is considered uh, a procedure by time. And a good example is the polish. A polish in BC is considered a service. So if I spend two seconds polishing that person's mouth, I can charge for it. In a province like Alberta, a polish is a unit of time. So there's got to be 15 minutes of time where you're removing stain, whether that might be by the ultrasonic, with the toothbrush, with, with your rubber cup, profi, that's considered 15 minutes of time. So that's got to be factored in in that hour that you're working on your patient. So that's the kind, or that's what I'm talking about. Is it a service? Is it a procedure? Is it a consortium province? Is it a non-consortium province? Are we billing for the entire hour or are we, are we only wet-handed billing where our hands are actually in a person's mouth? So that's the number one thing is they're, in most cases, they're not billing appropriately. Breakdown number two is they're not taking enough radiographs to screen for, for dental hygiene diagnosis. There's always enough radiographs when it comes to a dental diagnosis. But when I go in to see what their dental hygiene diagnosis is, I can't, I can't ascertain that because the radiographs that I have typically are horizontal, not vertical. I can 50% of the time see the bone levels and 50% of that time I can only see the maxillary or the mandible bone. So I cannot tell you if I've got a reduced periodontium, and if I do, what's it due to? 
So I don't have enough radiographs. Um, then the other thing is, is the comprehensive oral exam. Most, this is an awful thing to say, but most offices bill it, but they don't do it. And they would say, oh, I didn't realize that I needed to do all those steps for it to be a real comprehensive oral exam. So they bill it, they don't do it, then I don't have the ass assessments. Again, let's say I don't have those radiographs. I don't even have the assessments to go, okay, what periodontal condition is here? Like I, I don't know because I don't have the assessments. So I can't make a determination on a diagnosis. I certainly can't make a diagnosis or a determination on what needs to be treated here. I can't, I can't determine that. And I always say that whether I'm coming in, the college is coming in, an insurance company is coming in, between the radiographs and the assessments, should I not know what's going on with that patient? I should. I shouldn't need that patient in my chair, right? But I can't. So that can't be comprehensive care. So I've got in at, or at inappropriate hygiene billings, not enough radiographs to make a dental hygiene diagnosis. I don't have a comprehensive oral exam. The other thing that is a, a breakdown is what I call implementing best practices in the treatment of periodontal disease, meaning we're not using treatments and interventions that um, provide sort of superior outcomes. And typically these superior outcomes are consistent, they're measurable, and they're based on the most current evidence-based literature. Right now, everybody falls behind in that because the 2000, the new global 2017 AAP is out. And it's vastly different than what the 1999 is. So unless you graduate in the next couple of years, or if you haven't, if you've recently even graduated, you're not up to speed in terms of best practices. So best practices in treating periodontal disease is not happening. Then the fifth one, and this all because of the fact that we've gone paperless, is that the treatment that actually gets diagnosed at the back never gets to the front to be either pre-authorized or to actually be booked. So those are the five breakdowns. So we're doing a great job at the back, you know, if, and, you know, in terms of talking about treatment and things like that, but it never happens. And that's all because, like I said, we've gone paperless. So when I'm working with my practices, we have one piece of paper and I call it the treatment plan document that starts at the back and moves it way, its way to the front so that nothing that has been discussed gets missed. And typically right now, what, what is happening is that's all trying to be entered as the patients there, either, either by the hygienist or by the doctor. And because we are always under the pressure of time, you know, flying around, you know, trying to get things done, lots of stuff gets missed and miscommunicated. So those are the five things. So Gabriel, I, I mean, that, that, that it's just an amazing list. And uh, all I'm thinking about is like, you know, how do we move the needle, you know, for a clinic to go through all these steps and make sure, you know, this is done, uh, you know, um, you know, to, to help the clinic. How do you go about it? I mean, that's a lot of work. Well, you know, the thing is, is what we need to really do is get back to the basics of what we learned in school. And that's the process of care, which is ADPI. But we learned it, then we sort of unlearned it in private practice. And what I do is I just get everybody back to it. And you're right, that is a hard ship to turn. Typically my program is 18 months. And the reason it's 18 months is because I have to rid the team of all of their limiting beliefs about what patients will or will not accept, all the limiting beliefs around insurance, 
all of the limiting beliefs around, um, you know, all sorts of things that they are used to doing that I'm saying to them, well, that's not what the literature says. That's not what the literature says. The other big thing in creating this movement is making sure that your patients never sense that you've never not done it to sort of best practices. So setting up the practice so that it moves forward in a very, and it has to be slow so that it doesn't kill the clinician and so that the patient doesn't get what's going on here, like why all of a sudden all these changes. It's gotta be done very slow and sequentially. So when I go into practices, what I do is I start, the very first program is on the five clinical breakdowns that I just talked to you about and what they are, how they impact your practice and how we're going to start to fix them. By the end of the program, all of those five clinical breakdowns are solved. But the first program is just introducing you to them, telling you, getting you started in terms of systems and, pro, uh, systems and protocols, and then also getting you started into verbiage, into what you need or verbiage in terms of what you need to discuss with your patients to get them to already think that perhaps we need to take further action in the treatment of their periodontal disease. And it doesn't happen right away. It does happen right away for your new patients, but it doesn't happen right away for your existing patients because those patients have to be sort of set up so that in the months to come, we're going to start integrating best practices, which is doing comprehens a comprehensive, comprehensive oral exam, taking enough radiographs to determine what level of periodontal disease they have, and then breaking down their treatment so that we have enough time to get them to what I call endpoint and less than 10% bleeding, which is considered health in the literature. So that's basically how we do it, is we do it slowly, we do it sequentially, we do it um, with a lot of verbiage and a lot of support, like in terms of mentorship, in terms of, um, you know, just a little bit of hand-holding. It takes a good six months before everything is sort of learned, but by then, so the curriculum is taught within six months, and then what ends up happening is in that six after that six months, their patients are set up to come in for the treatment that they've talked about six months ago, which we get them doing, like I said, immediately, and then they're ready to go. And then we come in also in terms of integration, making sure that the clinician understands endpoint. And one of the big breakdowns that I see in private practice is everybody thinks that they get to endpoint in far fewer appointments than they need. And when you talk to a seasoned hygienist, they will say the longer that they've been in private practice, the more they realize they need more time to get to endpoint. So what my focus is when we're doing integration is to teach people that if you think you need one more appointment, you probably need two. If you think you need two more appointments, you probably need four, and I'm talking about initial therapy right now. If you see radiographic evidence of calculus, you need six. Like after 30 plus years of clinical experience and talking with all of my hygienists who have many years of experience, we all need six. And sometimes we need six times two. So two rounds. So you've got to understand that you are like, not only do you need to go through the process of care in order to get to endpoint, you need more time. And so if you need more time, that's a bigger cost to your patient. So you have to feel really confident that you can get them there and that there is value in what you do 
And I can guarantee if you do, it's rare that patients say no. They may say, oh, good, I want that, but I can't afford that. Can we figure out how we can do that so that I can get that treatment? Or can we delay it? Can we this? Most hygienists will say the answer isn't no, Gabriel. The answer is not yet or not right now. But in most cases, those, those patients are coming in for that treatment. Because the thing is, is that what clinicians need to understand and need to express to their patients is that 90% of all systemic diseases have some oral manifestation. So once you start to see the impact of oral health on overall health, and you understand that you are more than the person in that practice that's cleaning teeth, then you start to put that value into what you do, your patients will see that value and they will, they, they will pay for it. I, I know my listeners right now are not going to believe that, but I've done this so many times. Honestly, it, it's, it's the truth. It's achievable. That's the bottom line. It is achievable. You, you know, Gabriel, what I like, it's, it's, it's not a quick fix. You know, let's deal with the root causes of issues and let's elevate this, you know, and I, and I really like that because, um, you know, hey, everybody likes a quick fix, you know, and, and, and move on. But I, I like your approach to dealing with this. It does take a lot of time. It, it does take a lot of practice. But, you know, the outcome is, you know, promoting better oral health. I, I really like it. Gabriel, you know, um, for anybody that wants to get in touch with you, uh, wants to learn more, want you to come over to their office and and, and do uh, a chart audit. How how do how can people reach you? If you want to get a hold of me, best thing to do is first of all just go visit my uh, website uh, at gemdentalexpertswithanance.com. There's a great video on there that uh, I created based on a testimonial that was given to me by a hygienist that went through the process or the gem dental process. So you'll get a great insight in terms of how it felt to be them and uh, what it ended up doing for the entire team. If you want to reach me by email, you can reach me either by gem at gemdentalexperts, again with an S.com, or G as in George, M as in mother, A-Y-C-H-E-R at shaw.ca. My cell is 604-649. 2081, or if you're out of province or not in BC, my toll-free number is 1-800-790-8436. So those are all great ways to get a hold of me or find out what I'm all about. I'm also doing some um, workshops out in the rest of Canada. Look for me. It's beyond the 2017, the new global 2017 AAP classification. And so if I get an opportunity to see you there, that would be great. And um, I just wanted to say thanks, Mohammed, for having me today. It was uh, uh, great spending this time with you. And uh, I hope this was valuable on, on, on some level uh, for, your, for your audience. So thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today on Grow Your Dental Practice podcast. I would like to thank our corporate partner, Zero, a beautiful accounting software. If you'd like to know more information or just want to say hi, visit our website, Shift Accounting. That is shiftact.com or you can reach me directly at Mohammed, M-O-H-A-M-E-D at shiftact.com.